Part One, Chapter Four of Lady Byron Vindicated: A History of the Byron Controversy by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four: Results After Lord Byron's Death. Part Three of Three. There was a general confusion and outcry to Thomas Campbell's letter, which reacted both on him and on Lady Byron her friends were angry with him for having caused this reaction upon her and he found himself at once attacked by lady byron's enemies and deserted by her friends all the literary authorities of his day took up against him with energy christopher north professor of moral philosophy in the edinburgh university in a fatherly talk in the noctes condemns campbell and justifies more and heartily recommends his biography as containing nothing materially objectionable on the score either of manners or morals thus we have it in the noctes of may eighteen thirty quote, mr moore's biographical book i admired and i said so to my little world in two somewhat lengthy articles which many approved and some i am sorry to know condemned on the point in question between moore and campbell north goes on to justify moore altogether only admitting that it would have been better had he not printed any coarse expression of byron's about the old people and finally he closes by saying quote, i do not think that under the circumstances mr campbell himself had he written byron's life could have spoken with the sentiments he then held in a better more manly and more gentlemanly spirit in so far as regards lady byron than mr moore did and i am sorry he has been deterred from swimming through mr moore's work by the fear of wading for the waters are clear and deep nor is there any mud either at the bottom or round the margin of the conduct of lady byron's so-called friends on this occasion it is more difficult to speak there has always been in england as john stuart mill says a class of women who glory in the utter self-abnegation of the wife to the husband as a special crown of womanhood their patron saint is the griselda of chaucer who when her husband humiliates her and treats her as a brute still accepts all with meek unquestioning uncomplaining devotion he tears her from her children he treats her with personal abuse he repudiates her sends her out to nakedness and poverty he installs another mistress in his house and sends for the first to be her handmaid and his own and all this the meek saint accepts in the words of milton my guide and head what thou hast said is just and right accordingly miss martineau tells us that when campbell's defence came out coupled with a note from lady byron quote, the first obvious remark was that there was no real discourse and the whole affair had the appearance of a desire on the part of lady byron to exculpate herself while yet no adequate information was given many who had regarded her with favour till then gave her up so far as to believe that feminine weakness had prevailed at last the saint had fallen from her pedestal she had shown a human frailty quite evidently she is not a griselda but possessed with a shocking desire to exculpate herself and her friends is it then only to slandered men that the privilege belongs of desiring to exculpate themselves and their families and their friends from unjust censure 
lord byron had made it a lifelong object to vilify and defame his wife he had used for that one particular purpose every talent that he possessed he had left it as the last charge to moore to pursue the warfare after death which moore had done to some purpose and christopher north had informed lady byron that her private affairs were discussed not only with the whisky toddy of the noctes club but in every drawing-room in mayfair and declared that the dear duck letter and various other matters must be explained and urged somebody to speak and then when campbell does speak with all the energy of a real gentleman a general outcry and an indiscriminate melee is the result the world with its usual injustice insisted on attributing campbell's defence to lady byron the reasons for this seemed to be first that campbell states that he did not ask lady byron's leave and that she did not authorize him to defend her and second that having asked some explanations from her he prints a note in which she declines to give any we know not how a lady could more gently yet firmly decline to make a gentleman her confidant than in this published note of lady byron and yet to this day campbell is spoken of by the world as having been lady byron's confidant at this time this simply shows how very untrustworthy are the general assertions about lady byron's confidants the final result of the matter so far as campbell was concerned is given in miss martineau's sketch in the following paragraph Quote, the whole transaction was one of poor campbell's freaks he excused himself by saying it was a mistake of his that he did not know what he was about when he published the paper it is the saddest of all sad things to see a man who has spoken from moral convictions in advance of his day and who has taken a stand for which he ought to honour himself thus forced down and humiliated made to doubt his own better nature and his own honourable feelings by the voice of a wicked world campbell had no steadiness to stand by the truth he saw his whole story is told incidentally in a note to the noctes in which it is stated that in an article in blackwood january eighteen twenty five on scotch poets the palm was given to hogg over campbell one ground being that he could drink eight and twenty tumblers of punch while campbell is hazy upon seven there is evidence in the noctes that in due time campbell was reconciled to moore and was always suitably ashamed of having tried to be any more generous or just than the men of his generation and so it was settled as a law to jacob and an ordinance in israel that the byron worship should proceed and that all the earth should keep silence before him don juan that years before had been printed by stealth without murray's name on the title-page that had been denounced as a book which no woman should read and had been given up as a desperate enterprise now came forth in triumph with banners flying and drums beating every great periodical in england that had fired moral volleys of artillery against it in its early days now humbly marched in the glorious procession of admirers to salute this edifying work of genius blackwood which in the beginning had been the most indignantly virtuous of the whole now grovelled and ate dust as the serpent in the very abjectness of submission o'doherty a k a mcginn declares that he would rather have written a page of don juan than a ton of child harold 
timothy tickler informs christopher north that he means to tender murray as emperor of the north an interleaved copy of don juan with illustrations as the only work of byron's he cares much about and christopher north professor of moral philosophy in edinburgh smiles approval we are not after this surprised to see the assertion by a recent much aggrieved writer in the london era quote, that lord byron has been more than any other man of the age the teacher of the youth of england and that he has seen his works on the bookshelves of bishops palaces no less than on the tables of university undergraduates End quote a note in the noctes of july eighteen twenty two informs us of another instance of lord byron's triumph over english morals quote, the mention of this byron's going to greece reminds me by the by of what the guiccioli said in her visit to london where she was so lionized as having been the lady-love of byron she was rather fond of speaking on the subject designating herself by some venetian pet phrase which she interpreted as meaning love wife what was lady byron to do in such a world she retired to the deepest privacy and devoted herself to works of charity and the education of her only child that brilliant daughter to whose eager opening mind the whole course of current literature must bring so many trying questions in regard to the position of her father and mother questions that the mother might not answer that the cruel inconsiderateness of the literary world added thorns to the intricacies of the path trodden by every mother who seeks to guide restrain and educate a strong acute and precociously intelligent child must easily be seen what remains to be said of lady byron's life shall be said in the words of miss martineau published in the atlantic monthly Quote, her life thenceforth was one of unremitting bounty to society administered with as much skill and prudence as benevolence she lived in retirement changing her abode frequently partly for the benefit of her child's education and the promotion of her benevolent schemes and partly from a restlessness which was one of the few signs of injury received from the spoiling of associations with home she felt a satisfaction which her friends rejoiced in when her daughter married lord king at present the earl of lovelace in eighteen thirty five and when grief upon grief followed in the appearance of mortal disease in her only child her quiet patience stood her in good stead as before she even found strength to appropriate the blessings of the occasion and took comfort as did her dying daughter in the intimate friendship which grew closer as the time of parting drew nigh lady lovelace died in eighteen fifty two and for her few remaining years lady byron was devoted to her grandchildren but nearer calls never lessened her interest in remoter objects her mind was of the large and clear quality which could comprehend remote interests in their true proportions and achieve each aim as perfectly as if it were the only one her agents used to say that it was impossible to mistake her directions and thus her business was usually well done there was no room in her case for the ordinary doubts censures and sneers about the misapplication of bounty her taste did not lie in the charity ball direction her funds were not lavished in encouraging hypocrisy and improvidence among the idle and worthless and the quality of her charity was in fact as admirable as its quantity 
her chief aim was the extension and improvement of popular education but there was no kind of misery that she heard of that she did not palliate to the utmost and no kind of solace that her quick imagination and sympathy could devise that she did not administer in her methods she united consideration and frankness with singular success for one instance among a thousand a lady with whom she had had friendly relations some time before and who became impoverished in a quiet way by hopeless sickness preferred poverty with an easy conscience to a competency attended by some uncertainty about the perfect rectitude of the resource lady byron wrote to an intermediate person exactly what she thought of the case whether the judgment of the sufferer was right or mistaken was nobody's business but her own this was the first point next a voluntary poverty could never be pitied by anybody that was the second point but it was painful to others to think of the mortification to benevolent feelings which attends poverty and there could be no objection to arresting that pain therefore lady byron had lodged in a neighbouring bank the sum of one hundred pounds to be used for benevolent purposes and in order to preclude all outside speculation she had made the money payable to the order of the intermediate person so that the sufferer's name need not appear at all five and thirty years of unremitting secret bounty like this must make up a great amount of human happiness but this was only one of the wide variety of methods of doing good it was the unconcealable magnitude of her beneficence and its wise quality which made her a second time the theme of english conversation in all honest households within the four seas years ago it was said far and wide that lady byron was doing more good than anybody else in england and it was difficult to imagine how anybody could do more lord byron spent every shilling that the law allowed him out of her property while he lived and left away from her every shilling that he could deprive her of by his will yet she had eventually a large income at her command in the management of it she showed the same wise consideration that marked all of her practical decisions she resolved to spend her whole income seeing how much the world needed help at the moment her care was for the existing generation rather than for a future one which would have its own friends she usually declined trammelling herself with annual subscriptions to charities preferring to keep her freedom from year to year and to achieve definite objectives by liberal bounty rather than to extend partial help over a large surface which she could not herself superintend her first industrial school that awakened the admiration of the public which had never ceased to take an interest in her while sorely misjudging her character we hear much now and everybody hears it with pleasure of the spread of education in common things but long before miss coots inherited her wealth long before a name was found for such a method of training lady byron had instituted the thing and put it in the way of making its own name she was living at ealing in middlesex in eighteen thirty four and there she opened one of the first industrial schools in england if not the very first she sent out a master to switzerland to be instructed in de fellenberg's method she took on lease five acres of land and spent several hundred pounds in rendering the buildings upon it fit for the purposes of the school a liberal education was afforded to the children of artisans and laborers during the half of the day when they were not employed in the field or garden the allotments were rented by the boys 
who raised and sold produce which afforded them a considerable yearly profit if they were good workmen those who worked in the field earned wages their labor being paid by the hour according to the capability of the young laborer they kept their accounts of expenditure and receipts and acquired good habits of business while learning the occupation of their lives some mechanical trades were taught as well as the arts of agriculture part of the wisdom of the management lay in making the pupils pay of one hundred pupils half were boarders they paid little more than half the expense of their maintenance and the day scholars paid three pence per week of course a large part of the expense was borne by lady byron besides the payments she made for children who could not otherwise have entered the school the establishment flourished steadily till eighteen fifty two when the owner of the land required it back for building purposes during the eighteen years that the ealing schools were in action they did a world of good in the way of incitement and example the poor law commissioners pointed out their merits landowners and other wealthy persons visited them and went home and set up similar establishments during those years too lady byron had herself been at work in various directions to the same purpose a more extensive industrial scheme was instituted on her leicestershire property and not far off she opened a girls school and an infant school and when a season of distress came as such seasons are apt to befall the poor leicestershire stocking weavers lady byron fed the children for months together till they could resume their payments these schools were opened in eighteen forty the next year she built a schoolhouse on her warwickshire property and five years later she set up an iron schoolhouse on another leicestershire estate by this time her educational efforts were costing her several hundred pounds a year in the mere maintenance of existing establishment but this is the smallest consideration in the case she has sent out tribes of boys and girls into life fit to do their part there with skill and credit and comfort perhaps it is a still more important consideration that scores of teachers and trainers have been led into their vocation and duly prepared for it by what they saw and learned in her schools as for the best and the worst of the ealing boys the best have in a few cases been received into the battersea training school whence they could enter on their career as teachers to the greatest advantage and the worst found their school a true reformatory before reformatory schools were heard of at bristol she bought a house for a reformatory for girls and there her friend miss carpenter faithfully and energetically carries out her own and lady byron's aims which were one and the same there would be no end if i were to catalogue the schemes of which these are a specimen it is of more consequence to observe that her mind was never narrowed by her own acts as the minds of benevolent people are so apt to be to the last her interest in the great political movements at home and abroad was as vivid as ever she watched every step won in philosophy every discovery in science every token of social change and progress in every shape her mind was as liberal as her heart and hand no diversity of opinion troubled her she was respectful to every sort of individuality and indulgent to all constitutional peculiarities it must have puzzled those who kept up the notion of her being straight-laced to see how indulgent she was even to epicurean tendencies the remotest of all from her own but i must stop 
for i do not wish my honest memorial to denigrate into panegyric among her latest known acts were her gifts to the sicilian cause and her manifestations on behalf of the anti-slavery cause in the united states her kindness to william and ellen craft must be well known there and it is also related in the newspapers that she bequeathed a legacy to a young american to assist him under any disadvantages he might suffer as an abolitionist all these deeds were done under a heavy burden of ill health before she had passed middle life her lungs were believed to be irreparably injured by partial ossification she was subject to attacks so serious that each one for many years was expected to be the last she arranged her affairs in correspondence with her liabilities so that the same order would have been found whether she died suddenly or after long mourning she was to receive one more accession of outward greatness before she departed she became baroness wentworth in november eighteen fifty six this is one of the facts of her history but it is the least interesting to us as probably to her we care more to know that her last days were bright in honour and cheered by the attachment of old friends worthy to pay the duty she deserved above all it is consoling to know that she who so long outlived her only child was blessed with the unremitting and tender care of her granddaughter she died on the sixteenth of may eighteen sixty the portrait of lady byron as she was at the time of her marriage is probably remembered by some of my readers it is very engaging her countenance afterwards became much worn but its expression of thoughtfulness and composure was very interesting her handwriting accorded well with the character of her mind it was clear elegant and womanly her manners differed with circumstances her shrinking sensitiveness might embarrass one visitor while another would be charmed with her easy significant and vivacious conversation it depended much on whom she talked with the abiding certainty was that she had strength for the hardest of human trials and the composure which belongs to strength for the rest it is enough to point to her deeds and to the mourning of her friends round the chasm which her departure has made in their life and in the society in which it is spent all that could be done in the way of personal love and honour was done while she lived it only remains now to see that her name and fame are permitted to shine forth at last in their proper light end of miss martineau's quote in the atlantic monthly we have simply to ask the reader whether a life like this was not the best the noblest answer that a woman could make to a doubting world this ends chapter four results after lloyd byron's death read by michelle fry baton rouge louisiana